It's Mother's Day, and we're going to preach from Revelation 19, the second coming of Jesus Christ, all right, where the birds of the air will be invited to come and feast off the dead carcasses of God's enemies. Sorry, mothers, but we got to get through this book. Now, a couple years ago, Sarah Skelton sent me a prayer that she found that she really liked. A tribute prayer for Mother's Day by Amy Young. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experienced loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes and prods, tears and disappointment, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests and medical tests and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who have aborted children, we remember them and you on this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the coming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who placed children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst, we remember you. It's a wonderful sentiment, and as I read it in light of Revelation 19, some of the words that stick out to me are mourning and loss and miscarriage and infertility and disappointment and heartache and distance and grief, abuse, longing, complexity. Those kinds of things we all experience, not just mothers, would-be mothers and hopeful mothers and the like, but all of us in this life, at this time, experience those sorts of things. But one day, one day, one day all of that heartache and pain is going to give way with what John will describe, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. You may remember Handel's Messiah, written in 1741, one of the best known and most frequently performed choral works in history. And probably, I'm not so sure, but probably the most famous chorus in Handel's Messiah is the Hallelujah Chorus. Y'all want me to sing it for you? Hey! What? What? Hallelujah! Right? For the Lord God, the omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah! Right. I'm not even going to try the King of Kings, Lord. The Hallelujah Chorus, it's taken from Revelation 19. Hallelujah is a word that's used often in the Old Testament, right? Particularly in the Psalms, it means praise the Lord. Hallel, praise. Yah, Yahweh, praise Yahweh. It's only used four times in the New Testament, and all four of them are right here in Revelation chapter 19. Maybe that most famous chorus of Handel's Messiah comes from right here. Praise the Lord. Why? Because Jesus Christ is coming back. This is written, I believe, from the standpoint of Christ having come, right? John is seeing these visions, and, and time and time and time again throughout the book, he has brought us to the end of history when Christ will return and make all things new. But as we approach the end of the book, we're getting to that climactic end. And so here, the second coming of Jesus will be described in greater detail than any of the passages so far. And to make our points this morning, I want to borrow from the Apostle Paul, writing in Titus chapter 2, related to the second coming of Jesus, he said that you and I, as followers of Jesus, are looking for the blessed hope and the appearance of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It's one of the characteristics of a Christian is that we look for, we wait for, we anticipate the coming of Christ. And so, I'm going to encourage us from chapter 19 to look for the relief, look for the feast, and look for the victory. Verse 1, hallelujah. At Christ's coming, the menace of the world will be no more. Now, we've seen this theme before. As we have seen Babylon fall, the harlot fall in chapters 17 and 18. But John hears more this time. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice and a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they sang, Hallelujah, 
praise the Lord, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. I think this is written from the standpoint that Christ has come and he has done away with Babylon, that great harlot that I defined and I think is somewhat right, represents the world system headed by Satan that leaves God out. And it's been a menace to us for the last, well, since the fall, and will be until Christ comes again. And you'll remember, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And here, he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. So a few things about it quickly. When Christ comes and judges Babylon, the harlot, the world, it will be a righteous judgment. Verse 2, because his judgments are true and righteous. I think I reminded us this a couple weeks ago. Remind us again, we need to be careful with ourselves when we begin to question the righteous judgment of God upon an unbelieving world. Do they really deserve it? What does that say about him? testimony time and time and time again throughout the book of Revelation is that when God comes to judge, he does it in truth and righteousness. No one will cast doubts on God's ways at that time. And it will be deserved. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. This world system headed by Satan that leaves God out, that has been alluring and wooing God's people and the peoples of the earth into sin and rebellion against God this great harlot will deserve the judgment that comes. And it will be eternal. Verse 3, a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And it will be praiseworthy. We've already seen that. The loud voice in verse 1, Hallelujah. The second time in verse 3, Hallelujah. Again in verse 4, hallelujah. And in verse 5, give praise to our God. There is going to be relief for the people of God. The world has been wooing us into rebellion and sin, seducing us to no longer give our devotion to God and to his Christ, but to give our devotion to the world into the world's ways, alluring us, tempting us 
And it's a fight to resist, to say no, but it's a fight that goes on day after day after day after day after day for God's people until this day. It will be no more. There will be relief. And we need to look forward to the feast. Verse 6, then I heard something like a voice of a great multitude. So he heard a voice in verse 1. He hears a voice in verse 6. I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Well, what must that have sounded like? What did they say? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. For the Lord God, the Omnipotent, reigneth. When Christ comes again and does away with this world system, and we're about to see, does away with the beast, does away with the false prophet, does away with unbelievers, does away ultimately with Satan, he will reign forever and forever. Not that he doesn't reign now, but this will be the fulfillment of all of the expectation and promise of Scripture. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The marriage of the Lamb has come. This speaks to the sweet intimacy that you and I are ultimately going to enjoy forevermore with our great God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this to which the Bible has been moving ever since the fall and Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. The intimacy and the communion with God was broken. And a movement by God throughout the ages to bring mankind back into communion and intimacy with Him has been working itself out throughout the ages, and it's going to come to fruition when Christ comes again for this marriage to his bride. The book of Song of Solomon, the bride says, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. It's a book that certainly seems to celebrate the marital relationship between a husband and a wife, but it seems also to celebrate the intimate relationship that God is going to one day enjoy with his people. Fulfilled right here in Revelation chapter 9, 19. And we'll be ready. The bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I think probably two ideas are going on here, that you and I will be ready 
because Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all of our sins and his perfect righteousness has been given to us. Our sins washed away and the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us. We'll be ready. But it also probably carries the idea there in verse 8 that in light of the fact that our sins have been forgiven and the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to our account, there's more to it as well. The Holy Spirit of God has come to abide in us and to help us live in obedience to God. Not that we do so perfectly. None of us do. But part of the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant is not only the forgiveness of sins, but the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us live lives of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so apparently we will be ready not only because of what Christ has done for us in his forgiving us of sins and imputing his righteousness to us, but also because through his Spirit, he has worked out acts of righteousness through you and me. I didn't check on this, but I think it's true. The New American Standard says here, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I think it's literally the fine linen is the righteousnesses of the saints. So every good work that you do, empowered by the Spirit of God, is part of this fine linen that you and I will wear. And then in verse 9, he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So not only do we have this marriage that's going to take place, but there's going to be a feast as well. Probably all of us have been invited to some simple weddings, right? And those are sweet, and those are kind, and I sure hope my girls love simple weddings. <laughs> Redeemer's beautiful, girls, isn't it? I mean, it's just awesome. But then we've also been invited to some magnificent weddings, haven't we? Here comes a football illustration. You ready for one? My freshman year, University of North Texas, I got thrown to the Wolves, starting quarterback by the fourth game of the year, and, and one of our receivers was a guy named Richard Clark. That's it for the football illustration. Richard went on to marry a girl named Eva, and Eva Clark is one of the finest wedding designers in the country, and you may say even in the world. You can go look at her stuff. Just Google Eva Clark weddings. Absolutely gorgeous stuff. Girls, even if he gave me a 10% discount, <laughs> it won't happen. But we love a beautiful, magnificent wedding celebration, don't we? Or even if it's not a wedding feast, those times when we get together with the best of friends, with good food, and a magical environment, it's just a joy to be with friends, good food and good drink, 
beautiful ambiance and colors and lights and the rest, the music, all of it coming together for an unbelievable, unforgettable experience. There's going to be a marriage and there's going to be a feast. Now, are we meant to understand that when Christ comes, then there's going to be this marriage and there's going to be a feast and then it's over? No. I think this, these symbols, these images, describe what it's going to be like forevermore. We, wedded forevermore to our great bridegroom, enjoying the marriage feast, the joy, the gladness, the happiness forever. Will you be there? Verse 9, he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited. The scripture is clear. Those who will be there are those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of their sins and to be the king of their life. Have you done that? If you have, you'll be there. He said to me, these, these are true words of God. Bank on it. May you and I bank on it because it's this doctrine of the second coming of Jesus to make all things new that will put, if you will, steel in our veins to persevere and cling to Christ day after day after day through all of the kinds of words we talked about, through mourning and loss and, and disappointment and heartache and grief, knowing that Christ is going to come and Christ is going to make all things new and we are going to enjoy him forever will steady us and help us and strengthen us to continue on in the fight of faith in Jesus Christ. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Interesting little phrase there. And the scholars aren't exactly sure what it means. The best I could find was Bust Fanning at Dallas Seminary. If I understand him right, he thinks that this is probably the idea. My New American Standard has, for the testimony of, Je testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy and spirit is lowercase. Fanning thinks it probably ought to be uppercase, that this is talking about the Holy Spirit of God. And what has the Holy Spirit done? He has inspired the prophetic words about Jesus Christ. 
he, he may have broader prophecy in mind, but maybe has the book of Revelation in particular in mind. It, it's the Spirit of God through these visions that he has disclosed to John and, and, and then empowering him to write them down perfectly for us. The Spirit of God has, has given us these, these prophetic words about Christ, what he's up to in the world now and what is to come. And that those things that the Spirit has revealed in this book are meant to strengthen the child of God to hold on to the testimony of Jesus. He just said, I'm a fellow, this angel, I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus, or for the, the holding to the testimony of Jesus, clinging to him, believing in him, believing his word, trusting his word, holding on to him, that's what this whole book is about. That's why the Spirit of God brought it into being, is so that you and I will stay true to Christ, and may it be so of us. So let's look for the relief that's to come. Let's look forward to the feast that is to come and last forever. And then let's look forward to the victory. Here we get more explicit about the second coming of Christ, his glorious, victorious coming. Maybe you've heard before that Christ, when he comes again, is going to come in glory. This is one of the passages that we mean when we say that. In verse 11 down through 16, we're going to see the glory of King Jesus, and then 17 to 21, the victory of King Jesus. We've got to move fast. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And let, let me just say here, is what John des is describing here literally what it's going to be? Or is this symbolic, apocalyptic imagery meant to communicate truth to us about the second coming of Jesus? I think it's that. If, if we were to argue that it's literal, then I'd have to ask, what do we do about verse 15? From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Surely we don't believe that when Jesus Christ comes again, that he's going to have a long metal sword hanging out of his mouth. No, it's, it's a symbol. John saw it. He described what he saw, but it has symbolic meaning that merely by the word of Christ, he defeats his enemies. So, saw heaven open. Maybe the idea is, like we know, Christ came and lived and died and rose and ascended up into heaven where he is now. But one day, the heavens will be opened and behold, a white horse. In those days, conquering emperors, victorious generals rode on white horses. And so the imagery here is of the ultimate conqueror 
in the ultimate triumph. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. One of the author's commentaries commenting on this, he said he was tracing the covenants throughout the, throughout the Bible, and he said Adam failed, the Adamic covenant, and Adam failed, and, and God entered into covenant with Noah, and he failed, and God, the Abrahamic covenant, and Abraham failed, and the Mosaic covenant, and Moses failed, and the Davidic covenant, and David failed, and David's sons after him failed, and failed, and failed, but when we get to the new covenant, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those covenants. They were all looking to him, looking for an obedient son. Jesus in the new covenant did not fail. He's faithful and he's true. He will never let us down. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Again, when Christ comes to judge his enemies and vindicate his people, no one will question his decisions or doubt the justice of his cause. His eyes are a flame of fire. Probably means he doesn't miss a thing. Nothing is hidden from his sight. No evil will escape his judgment. On his head are many diadems. A couple of the guys that I read this week describe a diadem. I kind of thought of it. Of, the diadems being the, the jewels that would be upon the, the crown. But, but a diadem maybe was, was, how does one, an ancient diadem was the highly adorned and richly gemmed headdress worn by kings. In the East, the diadem was a symbol of absolute power. The diadem was usually a headband, headband about two inches wide, tied in the back and made of silk and inlaid with gold and the most precious gems. And so to say that he has many diadems, one says there is no dominion, no region, no locality over which he does not reign. He is Lord of all, and he wears the crown, the diadem of every place. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Maybe this points to his divinity in that there are aspects about Jesus Christ which we just don't know, right? We know what God has revealed about the Lord Jesus Christ, but we do not know everything about him. What we can know is true, but it is not exhaustive, and we will spend eternity learning more and more and more and more about our great God. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Some have thought that this is the blood, his own blood that he shed upon the cross. This comes from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 3, describing the Messiah coming in his victory over his enemies. This is the blood not of Christ that he shed. It's the blood of his enemies when he treads out the winepress of the wrath of God. His name is called the Word of God. He, he reveals God, and in particular here, he reveals the judgments of God. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. 
Some wonder if this is merely angelic beings. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2, I believe it is, talks about angels coming with him. Jesus in Mark 13, Matthew 24, the angels that come with him. But probably also it includes his people who come with him as well. Those who have died before his coming. And then I believe the passage that Shane read earlier, that if Christ were to come today, and boy, we could get into pre-trib and all that kind of stuff, I think the First Thessalonians 4 passage is describing the second coming of Jesus. We will go up into the air to meet the king and descend with him as he comes to establish his kingdom on earth. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, from Psalm 2. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, from Isaiah 63. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Real fast, and just so you know, we're not going to sing a closing song today. So we'll, we'll finish the sermon and then end with a benediction. So if you're watching your watch, you get a little bit, of, little bit of ease to you there. That's the glory of Christ, the coming Christ, and now the victory. It's anticipated here in verse 17 to 18. Watch this. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. We already had one meal earlier, the marriage feast, and now we're going to have this great feast, which one described, it's a, it's a parody of the earlier one. The earlier meal feast is a joyful meal for the people of God to experience Him forevermore. This not so much. Come assemble for the great supper of God this angel, this angel says to the birds of the air, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Gracious. The birds of the air are invited to come and feast upon the dead bodies of the enemies of God. Again, symbolic, apocalyptic language, anticipating the great victory that Christ is going to win. And now that anticipates it, and now here it's manifest in 19. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Jesus is going to win in the end. 
and it's a ridiculously easy fight. The beast and the kings of the earth and their armies are assembled against him. He was seized. And they were thrown alive into the lake of fire. You don't have to turn there, but listen to how Paul describes the coming of Jesus and the defeat of Antichrist and more. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed, meaning the man of lawlessness, the coming Antichrist, the beast. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Easy, cheesy, lemon squeezy. No problem for Jesus Christ in the defeat of the beast, the false prophet, and all of those who are aligned with him. Christ is coming. And when he does, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. We like to say on Easter, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Well, we don't say on Easter, we say on Good Friday. Sorry about that. We like to say on Good Friday, when we remember the death of Jesus, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming when he rises from the dead. I don't know the best way to put it, so this is my feeble attempt. It's now, but then is coming. Satan's still alive and well. Our flesh, though those of us who believe that we've been forgiven of our sins and the Spirit of God has been given to us to help us in the fight against sin and to trust and obey Jesus, our flesh remains and we have to fight it and it gets the best of us, and, uh, and the world, this system headed by Satan that leaves God out that is so tempting to us and wooing to us and alluring to us and distracting to us, we got to deal with them now. But then is coming. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you put steel into our spiritual veins? By the, with the reminder that the one who came and lived and died and rose and ascended and reigns from heaven above is going to come again and make all things 
right. And wipe away every tear. No more death. No more mourning. No more pain. But he will reign forever and forever. Would you strengthen us deep inside that we might persevere in faith, holding on to Christ through it all. And uh, help us to resist the evil one, to put to death our flesh, to not be conformed to this world, but evermore devoted to and faithful to Jesus. We need your help. And so we pray in Jesus' name.